Welcome to Blackbird episode number 59. My name is James, and today I am pleased to bring to you my interview with Sari Ibrahim. Sari is a practitioner of the infinite banking concept. Those of you who have been following Bob Murphy for a while probably have heard of infinite banking, and you might have had some questions probably the same questions that I did. So I wanted to have Sari on to give us Infinite Banking 101 and then to answer just some of the reservations that I've had or some of the reservations that I've heard other people have. If you think that Infinite Banking is right for you, follow the link to Sari's website in the show notes. I think that Infinite Banking obviously is not for everybody, but I do think it is a great option for a lot of people who would like to experience financial freedom. Before we get into it with Sari, let me tell you once again about Football Insider Edge. I remember when I was little, my dad would go to the bar with his buddies every week and play something called fantasy football. I didn't understand it then, and I really don't understand it today. But one thing I do like is having a little fun placing bets and hopefully making money. If you love playing fantasy football or if you're hopeless at it like me, I've found the perfect resource to help you with your research, Football Insider Edge. Whether you're a season-long player, focused on DraftKings or FanDuel contests, or you just like to make the occasional wager, Football Insider Edge provides you with the research tools and in-depth analysis to take your game to the next level. With their proprietary model, matchup charts, and award-winning content, the team at Football Insider Edge have devoted themselves to educating their subscribers, helping them improve their play, and in a few special moments, win life-changing money. The guys at Football Insider Edge are especially proud of the community that they've built through their interaction on Slack, and they take great pride in helping others achieve the goal of becoming better fantasy players. For listeners of this show, they're offering a 20% discount on any monthly or full season plan. Head over to footballinsideredge.com and use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get signed up today. Once again, that's footballinsideredge.com and use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to sign up today. Real quick, on listening to this interview a second time, it sounds like there were some technical issues with my internet connection, and so my recording gets a little bit garbled and the interview does get cut off towards the end. So I apologize for that, and I still think you'll get a lot out of this interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Sari Ibrahim. Sari, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Hi, James. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, totally. I've been wanting to have an IBC person on the show. And actually, you you uh, or your assistant reached out to me mm-hmm. having discovered this show somehow. So it's very, you know, fortuitous that that happened because I've been kind of struggling to get, you know, some of the names that everybody's heard, like Bob Murphy and stuff like that to show up. So if I ever do get him on, we'll be able to talk about other things, I guess. <laughs> anyway, go ahead and introduce yourself so that uh, people who don't know who you are can kind of know who you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, I have a, I have a show called Thinking Like a Bank, a podcast, and it's, mm-hmm. we talk about infinite banking. I, I really found out about infinite banking about um, two years ago. I was reading a book. Um, so kind of a little bit of, about my background, I was doing my MBA and I became a financial planner, financial professional. I was working with different insurance companies. I really enjoyed working with people and, and kind of figuring out money problems and one of the ways I do that is I constantly am reading. I'm reading a lot of books. I read about three books at the same time because I have to. I have to be kind of really well informed of financial planning and and kind of dealing with people and, and, their, and their money. 
So I came across a book called The Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen on Amazon and I read the book. Uh, I loved, loved the book. I loved the, the concept. So Bank on Yourself is also known as uh, Infinite Banking. It comes from Infinite Banking, which talks about growing wealth safely, predictably outside of the stock market. It talks about um, lowering your tax liability in the future. It talks about uh, becoming your own source of finance, which is arguably the most important benefit is you, you become your own banker. Mm-hmm. And, and another book too that's relevant is Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. So those are the two books, Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash and The Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen. Uh, after reading these books, I then joined the Bank on Yourself organization to become a Bank on Yourself professional, which is kind of like an IBC professional, but a different trademark, different brand. So I'm a Bank on Yourself mm-hmm. professional. And, and now I started a company called Financial Asset Protection. And this is exactly what we do. We help build out infinite banking policies for real estate investors, business owners, full-time employees, pretty much anybody who wants to grow wealth uh, in the future, we help them do that. And this is why I wanted to be on your show to talk about what infinite banking is and why it's beneficial. Nice. So I know the Nelson Nash kind of vein of infinite banking is like, it's almost explicitly Christian in nature. Do you follow Christianity? Are you, does Pamela Yellen's kind of train also go down that route or is it a little bit different? And, and yeah, it's a little, I guess yeah. I guess also do you do you know why that is? Yeah, I, I don't know why it is, but yeah, it's a little bit different. I don't follow Christianity, so I sorry I can't speak too much. Mm-hmm. If that helps. <laughs> That's fine. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've just always thought that was pretty interesting. Maybe I'll maybe I'll one of these days get to talk to Bob Murphy and ask him what the deal is. And maybe it is just that Nelson Nash is Christian, and like so, his followers ended up being Christian as well. I guess why don't we get down to brass tacks then? What is infinite banking? Yeah, definitely. So infinite banking, what it is, it is kind of a counterintuitive approach because we're talking about money and wealth and growing it over time. Uh, but really what it is, it's gro- it's um, using dividend paying whole life insurance. So to kind of back up a little bit, there's typically three different types of life insurance. There's term life, whole life, and universal. Term has a set period of time. like a, It's usually 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and um, it, it has a start date and an end date. And it's only life insurance. There's no other values to it. And then the second is whole life insurance, which is has a start date, but not necessarily an end date unless you pass away. And it's for your whole life. And it also has cash value in it, like a savings account portion inside of the policy that also grows. And the universal, in essence, is a combination of term and whole life. But I won't get too far into universal just for the purposes of talking about infinite banking. It, it mainly refers to whole life insurance, specially designed, high cash value whole life insurance. So you're pretty much taking out a whole life insurance policy, building up the cash value, and then using that cash value or anything you want to borrow for your business, to borrow for real estate, to borrow for your personal life. And you're growing it over time um, through the cash value. So it's a, it's more on the living benefits. You don't have to pass away to get the benefit of the whole life insurance. It's while you're still alive, of course. And while you're still uh, um, working, you're able to use that money for any, anything you want. So infinite banking is using cash value, whole life insurance, to become your own source of financing and to fund anything you want. How much do you need to have in your policy in order to like start actually taking advantage of loans that make a difference in your life? Yeah, so that all varies, right? It all depends. I started my first policy, putting in $300 a month. Uh, after month one, technically, I was able to borrow like I think $100 out of the policy. So a minimal amount, very tiny amount, nothing I could really do dramatically with $100. But over time, as I was building it up, putting more money into it, I was able to turn around and borrow more out of it. And while you're doing that, the policy cash value is going to earn interest and dividends. 
again, in the first couple of years, not really that crazy. Um, but over time, it, it starts to become substantial and you don't have to really wait. Like, so technically, I actually started using policy loans like three or four months in to pay down some credit card debt I had, mm-hmm. which is a common use of infinite banking is to pay down debt. That's one of, the, one of the things that people use it for. And so I was able to transfer my credit card debt to my infinite banking policy. So now I'm moving the debt from point A to point B. Still, uh, there's the debt is still there, but I would prefer to be in debt to myself than in debt to another lender. Because while I am borrowing my money, I'm also continuously earning compound interest on it. And that's kind of the point of infinite banking is that you have the ability to save your money and use it at the same time by being able to borrow against it. Now, people are always like, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to save money. And then when I want to use it, I borrow against it. Why do I have to borrow my own money? And the reason why is you want to borrow because you don't want to interrupt the growth of your savings. For example, if you've been saving money, you know, you have $100,000 in cash value and you go to, for example, take out $50,000. If I subtract $50,000 from that, I'm going to interrupt the future growth of that cash value forever. Versus if I borrow against it, I don't interrupt the growth of it. If I borrow $50,000 against my $100,000, then the $100,000 keeps growing, keeps compounding. When I have a loan now for $50,000, I pay that back. While I've been paying that back, my entire $100,000 kept growing. So Really, infinite banking allows you to compound your money without having to uh, sacrifice the interruptions of your growth. And I think that that's one huge problem as to why people have trouble savings is that it's almost like a staircase where you're climbing, climbing, climbing in savings, and then you buy a house. Now you're just back, you're down to zero and you save, save, save. You buy a car, now you're down to zero. And then you save, 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 and then your kids go to college and then you're back down to zero. So there's a constant roller coaster in people's savings because they have to almost deplete it. So that's kind of what infinite banking is. I've got a lot of my money in crypto and it's been growing over the last year, obviously. But uh-huh. like, I'm kind of dreading, like, wh- what do I do with it? Do I do I use it to put a down payment on a house, which is one of my long-term goals? Yeah. Or do I just let it keep growing? Does this kind of solve that problem of what do I do with my money? Exactly. Yeah, it helps with that because a lot of people have this kind of, you know, from what I've seen talking to a lot of clients, they kind of have this d- a double-edged struggle where it's, or I need to save for the future. I need to I need to have an emergency fund. I need mm. to save for retirement. I need to have pretty much cash that's growing over time so that way I could use it if needed. And then the other concern is, well, I also want to invest my money in different things. I want to you know, invest in crypto. I want to invest in real estate. I want to grow that money significantly over time instead of just having it sitting in a bank account. So what do I do? Do I spend or save or invest? And infinite banking comes in, it could come in and it can kind of address multiple these these concerns where all right, I could take X amount of dollars, save it every year, and then borrow against that and then invest in different places and then have those grow and then even use the proceeds from that to pay back the policy loans. And you can kind of have this whole financial system. And this is exactly what banks do. You know, banks are ha- are doing multiple things with, with your money. They are saving it. They are growing it. They're investing it. They're loading it out to other people. There's a lot of things that they're doing. And I think that that's key for a lot of people to understand about money is that there's more you could do with it than just having it sitting in a bank account or investing it. There's There are ways where you can kind of connect them together and, and do both. Are you able to use your life insurance policy like, does it just work like a checking account? Can you just take money out whenever you want? Or like, would you also have bank accounts in tandem with it? Yeah, yeah. So you still want a bank account just 
for the loans to come out of the policy to, to go into your bank account and then from your bank account to use for anything you want. Um, so here's the thing. So let's say, for example, I have a policy, right? And I've been saving into, and I have like, I don't know, $50,000 into it. There are a couple of ways I can access um, those funds. So one way is I can go online, just like online banking. You can open up your online account. You can see, all right, you have $50,000. You could borrow up to 90%. So $45,000. And then I could transfer that 45000 from the insurance company to the bank. It takes about three business days for that to happen. That's one way. Another way is I could um, sign a form. So form, it sounds really old school, but I can like fill out a form um, and then send it to the insurance company, either mail it or email it or fax it. And then they would uh, send me a check for that amount or a direct deposit. So a couple of different ways. But you know, one thing that I kind of like about it is that there's a, there's a, there are a few obstacles to get to your money. So you have to you know go online, request it, wait three business days, or fill out a form, send it in. And when when you have a few obstacles in between you and your money, it makes you think more about using your money. It makes you evaluate it more. And this is something that I've seen working with a lot of wealthy clients is that their money is not super accessible. It's not like at their fingertips because if it is, they're probably going to spend more of it. And rather, if they can kind of add some obstacles and not too many obstacles, you don't want to lock up your money for like 30 years. But at the same time, there it's 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 harder to get to. You're more likely to save it over time. So I kind of like that part of it. And I, this is something I recommend for people who want to save money for the future is kind of have some barriers around your money, some obstacles, not too many obstacles, but more obstacles than you currently have. Because money right now is super accessible. You can just go on your banking app or you know yeah. transfer money or use a debit card, credit card. It's super liquid, super accessible, which could be problematic. I managed to max out a credit card just this past summer, you know, making up for all the lost time from 2020. So uh, I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> So does this replace like a retirement account? Do people still have IRAs and 401ks and all that when they're doing IBC? Yeah, absolutely. So it's IBC is never meant to replace anything. It's meant to kind of make things better in the sense of predictability and certainty. It's 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 never an either or position. It's it's both and. It's it's being able to do a couple of different things with your money. So yeah, people definitely still have their IRA. A lot of times people will have, for example, a 401k they're 60 years old now. So they're beyond the age limit of 59 and a half or the, the minimum age of 59 and a half to avoid the 10% tax penalty. And they, they'll take out, for example, if they have half a million, they'll take out a hundred thousand from that or whatever the case might be to fund for whole life insurance. Mm-hmm. We also help clients with annuities. Annuities aren't technically part of infinite banking, but they could be connected in the sense of uh, you have, for example, an IRA, you move for IRA money to an annuity without paying any taxes on that transfer. And then from the annuity, you get distributions. And then from those distributions, you can fund a whole life policy. So a lot of things you could do. And yeah, it's very common for people to have multiple vehicles, like an IRA, 401k, and life insurance policy. It's very common for people to transition from different vehicles into infinite banking. It all really depends on the client's objectives. And it depends on what's what's currently happening in the economy. It depends on... Um, their tax tax liability depends on also their their life situation. Did they get laid off? Did they retire? Did they want to leave their job earlier? So all these kind of different things. It's important. I think the number one important thing is it's not the company, it's not the tools, it's not the techniques. It's the person you're working with. You want to make sure that you're working with an advisor who does this full time, not just somebody who has a life insurance license who could sell you infinite banking. Those are two completely different distinctions. You want to work with somebody who does infinite banking full time 
who has clients who actually has who could use the cash value for who can help you use the cash value for anything that you want. So what about like other investments? I mean, I guess as someone who, you know, just has a normal middle class income, mm-hmm. it to me is a huge balancing act between what I invest, what I spend, what I how much I put into paying off those max out credit cards, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Do you advise on how best to allocate funds like that? Or is the client just kind of on, on their own when they're working with you? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely make recommendations. You know, I, I, I get a full idea of their financial situation. We do a financial analysis. It takes about 60 minutes to do. And it's typically done over Zoom or over the phone. And I get an idea of their financial picture. Like, you know, do they have any debt? Do they have a mortgage? You know, how much they have in savings, brokerage accounts? Um, how old are they? You know, it makes a big difference if they're 20 years old versus 65 years old. Um, I kind of get, are they married? Do they have kids? Um, where, what part of the country do they live in? I take into consideration all these different things. And then we have a second call after that. And that's a personalized solution. And in the personalized solution, I make recommendations like, look, you have, you know, for example, no debt in your home. You have, it's, it's all paid off. Your home is entirely paid off, but you have all this credit card debt. You know, you can leverage uh, your home. So some of the equity in your home to pay that credit card debt because your home equity loan could be 3%, whereas your credit cards are like 15%. So you would save money doing it that way. Plus you'd have more of a longer time period to pay back the loan against your home. You know, that's that's just one tiny example that we would do. Other things that we would do is we'd look at, for example, you know, do they have student loan debt? Do they have all these other different things that we kind of try to um, position a strategy? Also too, we went, for example, I worked with a, I worked with a client one time who was putting in the maximum in their 401k, which is about $20,000 a year. And they didn't have a match. And I kind of brought that to their attention. Like you're maxing out your 401k, you don't have a match. you know. And I asked the clients too, I, they're also in control too. So it's not just me saying, do this. You know, I'm also asking them like, how do you feel about a 401k? And their response is, well, isn't this what you're supposed to do when you have a 401k, just max it out? And I, and I say, no, that's not, you know, I think with money, there are no shoulds in money. There really is no, the word should comes from a belief system. So we have different beliefs about different things in life. Um, and I don't think that should should be anywhere near money. People have um, options and they, they need to evaluate different strategies based off of their financial situations. And they also need to, more important than all of that is identify their objectives, their needs, wants, what is it they want to do with their money? And what is it they want out of life? And then to be able to find vehicles that can connect them there. That I think is more important because somebody might say, I'm 30 years old, I should own a home by now. They're putting themselves into conventional lanes when in reality, it doesn't really make sense that whoever said that, you know, that's just an opinion you've heard somewhere, but really drill down on your objectives and then kind of connect that, find financial vehicles and tools that can connect you to your objectives. So does a whole life insurance, does it provide any sort of a hedge against inflation? I know that a lot of people are worried about that right now. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So the um, conservative growth of whole life insurance, it's it's not crazy rate of return. It's not meant to be a rate of return vehicle. It's uh, typically you know, a boring rate, 4 to 6% every year. And that's one of the ways it's able to outpace inflation. It's by that compounding rate um, every Every four to sixty, every forty, uh, sorry, four to six percent every year. If we assume inflation is around three percent average over, you know, a, a thirty-year time period, then you would definitely outpace inflation through your whole life insurance policy. Plus, you'd be able to borrow against your policy to use for investments that could potentially give you higher investments, which we do for our clients. We have recommendations that. You know, for example, a lot of our clients are passive real estate investors. So they'll invest in passive real estate deals 
um, using their whole life insurance policy. And that's how they're able to get to those, you know, 10, 12%, you know, rate of return um, by borrowing against their policy and then using that to invest in real estate deals. Also, some clients too are private money lenders. And what that means is they borrow from their policy and they loan that out at higher interest rates uh, for real estate deals or other types of businesses. And that's again, that, that's also how they're able to kind of multiply their money over time. So yeah, we have these strategies and definitely inflation is something that we take into consideration. Great. So this is something that Nelson Nash and presumably Pamela Yellen kind of rediscovered, right? This actually goes back a really long time. <laughs> exactly. Um, large financial institutions, banks, you know, the richest families in America have been using this strategy, really just pretty much the allocation of cash value whole life insurance for hundreds of years. You know, since, you know, as, as old as life insurance companies are, which a lot of insurance companies like New York Life and Mass Mutual are, are well over. I think there were since since the 1800s, you know? So a lot of insurance companies have been around since then. And the people, the only people who made it through the Great Depression and the only companies and people who made it through the Great Depression were people, people who had cash value whole life insurance because oh, wow. that cash value in the whole life policy, insurance policy was not affected by everything else that happened in the world during the Great Depression from banks and the stock market, everything else that, that was volatile. Um, you know, those are the only families and companies who were able to hedge against that where people had cash value life insurance. You're right. It wasn't until like 20 years ago where it was the infinite banking concept. And then after that, bank on yourself. But really, it's based off of um, something that the ultra wealthy have been doing. And it's not only the ultra wealthy that need to or should be doing this, but, you know, anybody could be really doing you know, this concept of using cash value whole life insurance. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, before we started recording also that you do like some entrepreneurship commentary and coaching, maybe where does that go? Who do you work with as far as that's concerned? Yeah, absolutely. So I own my own business now and it Mm -hmm. took me a while to do that. It took took a lot of hard work. It actually took me a few times. And what I mean by that is I would start a business and then it wasn't sustainable and I had to put it on hold and then go get a full-time job. I did that a few times actually, where I would go um, W2 employee to entrepreneur back and forth. And over that time period, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about entrepreneurship. I've read hundreds of books on entrepreneurship because I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to survive. It's it's very difficult because mm-hmm. just because the odds are against you when you're a small business owner, most, I, I don't even know what the number is, like 80 or 90% of small business owners actually fail within the first five years. And then that number actually keeps climbing, you know? Yeah. So um, it's something that I kind of saw it as like, I don't really have any other choice but to be an entrepreneur. And, and it's going to work eventually. If you do a, you know, if you do anything more than once, it's going to work. So over the years, I've gathered a lot of skills and techniques to um, help other people in entrepreneurship. And the way I do that is I have clients who come to me, for example, who might be full-time employees, but they also, and they're, they're coming to me initially for financial reviews. And they also want to invest in real estate. They also want to start a business on the side, or they want to eventually have do that full-time where they're full-time business owners. And through the financial coaching part, we also do business coaching. So kind of look at what's what's happening. And and I think coaching is, is open-ended. So if you can help somebody, if you can coach somebody through their financial life, for the most part, you can also coach them through their business part. The coaching sure. principles are transferable from one area to another. So that's how I, you know, that's how I, I, I coach people through a business. Also, you know, I share what I've done in my business, things that I've done, some of the failures I've done. Like, for example, one of the failures I've, I've had is being distracted by too many different opportunities where I'll start mm-hmm. something and then I'll come across something else and then drop that for something else. And not, then really, I'm not really 
successful in anything. I'm just chasing, you know, uh, shiny object. I have shiny object syndrome where I'm just chasing shiny objects. And then one of the things I do to overcome that and prevent that from happening is every single day, um, Monday through Friday in the morning, I prioritize what I'm doing, the business, why I'm doing it, and then the the key parts of that business that need to be done. So this way, if I do come across an opportunity that day somewhere else, I'm subconsciously going to ignore it. It's not in my priority list for that day. So I'm going to kind of exclude it. And I only do things that are within that priority. So just that's just one out of you know many things that I do to stay focused and to eliminate previous failures I've had from, from past experience. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of your failures. I'd love to hear, uh, I'd love to hear yeah. some of your, uh, some of your learning experiences. Yeah, definitely. So one mentioned, you know, being too distracted by other things. Another thing too is another, another thing too, is not knowing um, numbers, not very concerned about numbers versus, I mean, financially, how much I have, how much I'm making, how much I want to make all the kinds of forecasting. I never really did that as an entrepreneur, which is, Ironic because you have to be, as an entrepreneur, you have to be very vigilant of your numbers. You need to know what business you're in, how it makes money, how often you make money, what you're expecting, what are some obstacles that can get in the way of making, of reaching those goals. And you also need to know the pre-existing factors that lead to. So you you can't just say, I'm going to make a million dollars this year. You have to say, well, I'm going to make a million dollars by closing uh, mm. 20 clients, and I'm going to close 20 clients by talking to 500 clients, and I'm going to talk to 500 clients by being on a thousand podcasts. And I'm going to get to a thousand podcasts by reaching out to you know thousands of other podcast hosts. So you have to have all these metrics in place that lead from one metric to another metric. And then when you the the more you do that, the more you drill down on that, the more likely you are to actually get to those goals. So that's one mistake I didn't do. And now I do both as, on the financial coaching side and definitely on the business coaching side is drill down on the numbers and, and almost become fluid in that subject. So what other sort of like business ventures have you done? You said that you kind of switched between entrepreneur and W2 employee. Yeah. How does that work? How does that manifest in your life when you realize, oh, I'm... I need the security of a W-2 or, oh, I need the freedom of my own business. So that's a good question. So what actually happens is your, (laughs) so somebody else's goals align with either your opportunities or your problems. So in other words, I have my business, it's not working out and I have a problem. Somebody wants to hire me, that's their opportunity. And then there's alignment there. So my problem aligns with somebody else's opportunity, which is not always a good thing. That just means that, I'm helping somebody else now grow their business when I should have been working on my business. So it's kind of so a, a lot of times that's what happens with other entrepreneurs is that their struggle aligns with somebody else's you know advantage. Um, and then you know so that's kind of what happened is that I was struggling and then found a job and then I was like, oh well I can put this on hold. And it's not it's there's you know there's benefits to it. There's pros and cons to doing because you get you get that income now. As far as continuously growing the business, you have to be careful with that. There's a lot of legal barriers around that. A lot of companies don't want to hire people who are going to build a side business, especially if it's a similar space, like working at an insurance company and then starting an insurance agency on the side. That's not a cool thing to do. A lot of there's a lot of people have been sued doing that. And and think about it from the company's perspective is that they're going to hire you, they're going to guarantee you a salary, they're going to pay your social security, the Medicare tax, they're going to do all these things for you, give you benefits in some cases. And then you're going to go and take that money that you're getting paid from them and then essentially become their competition, become their threats. So I think the ways that people could do that if they wanted to start a business on the side is Mm -hmm. by doing 
uh, having a different having a different business. So, for example, you work I don't know um, you work in healthcare and then you want to do real estate on the side. I'm sure they won't really care because it doesn't conflict with you what you're doing. So you want to just take that into consideration and um, and yeah, definitely evaluate your goals and what your objectives. I've got a coworker who uh, is. We work in a software company, but she's also a fashion designer on the side, which I think is really cool. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a podcaster on the side, I suppose, so that's neat. Yeah. Yeah. Who is IBC not for, and are there any like drawbacks to it? I guess. Yeah, so IBC is definitely it's a long term planning process. It's a long term solution. It's not something where like I'm going to move you know a thousand dollars from my bank account today and I'm going to put it in IBC and flip it and make it five thousand dollars tomorrow. It's not. It's not cryptocurrency. It's not day trading. It's not for people who are thinking that way, where they're thinking of how do I multiply money quickly? You know, it's definitely a long-term solution. You could borrow from the policy and do day trading and do invest in cryptocurrency. You could do anything you want with it. But overall, it's definitely a long-term solution. Um, it's for people who are asking what's going to happen in 20 years from now. How am I going to, you know, be able to do? And then it's also for people who are thinking the next generation as well. So it's it's very long term thinking. That's I think who it's for. It's not for very short term thinking. Nice. And are there negatives to it? Yeah. So one negative is that there's going to be like a a difference in premiums versus liquidity. So for example, if I'm putting in you know in my policy when I was putting in three hundred dollars a month, I didn't have access to three hundred dollars a month right away, which I was fine with. I, again, I was doing it for the long term. I was doing it for a long as a long term solution. So in other words, there might be a, there's going to be a dip between how much you're paying year one and then how much cash value you actually have. And then eventually, every year as you're paying into it, it starts off like this, where you have your premiums are paid in, here's your cash value below your premiums paid. And then every year, they're both climbing, you're paying more into the policy, and then the cash value is growing. And then eventually, it outpaces what you paid into it. You end up, the cash value end up, ends up exceeding the premiums paid, which is the point. Mm-hmm. And it keeps exceeding even when you borrow against the policy. It keeps growing. So this isn't necessarily for someone who's like putting a whole lot of their paycheck into debt payments, for instance, because they won't have that access right away. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You would need some some disposable income. Yeah. You know, if you're starting off, I would recommend at least maybe $500 a month in, in extra extra money that you have. Um, after paying your bills, paying everything, definitely, you know, it, it's going to be difficult to put money into it. And then when you're already like paycheck to paycheck, it's going to be very difficult yeah, to do. Yeah. But but part of the financial analysis that we do with clients is that we help them, you know, solve these problems. So that way we, we try to help them free up money to allocate to infinite banking. Yeah. One thing I've learned is like, unless you have a budget on paper, you really don't know how much you're spending and yeah. how much of that you could like, not be spending. Yeah. Just canceling a couple of subscriptions yeah. could get you over that line. Do you recommend to people that they pay off debt before doing anything else or is investing for the future more important? That's the thing too, is that, you know, like for example, Dave Ramsey says that before you do anything, get out of debt, like pay down your debt, make that your top concern, get out of debt. But the problem is with that is, and Dave Ramsey says some things that I agree with and some things that I don't agree with. Yeah. Like the problem with that is that if I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to work extra hours. I'm going to take a part-time job. I'm going to do all these things to pay down debt. But then what really happens is I'm just, gonna, I'm just getting to zero now. Now, mm-hmm. like I'm out of debt. That's true. But at the same time, I've made it to zero, you know, which is also another problem too. Now you just went from one problem to another problem. So what if I could pay down debt and save for the future at the same time? 
you know, this is where helping a coach helps you kind of do both. And, and I recommend you do both. You save and pay down debt at the same time. You don't always want to think of paying other people first. You want to also, you know, rich dad, poor dad. Robert Kiyosaki says, pay yourself first. Always pay yourself, pay yourself first. first. Because when you pay yourself first and then you have to figure out how to pay everybody else, you've already checked the most important thing is, is you paying yourself. Um, and it's not selfish. It's actually financially logical because you're doing all these things why are you doing all these things? Are you a slave to other people? Or are you trying to find financial freedom? You know, in order to find financial freedom, you have to pay yourself first. So you, when, and then also something crazy happens too, is when you end up paying things first, you end up finding money for the other things somehow, some way it happens, especially as an entrepreneur, you end up like, if you paid all the lenders first, and then you have no money, you're not going to really find extra money to pay yourself. But if you did the opposite, you paid yourself first, and then you had to find the money to pay other lenders, you would find that money somehow, somewhere you would do it. So kind of prioritize the urgency of that. Why don't we talk a little bit about your personal life, I guess? Mm-hmm. Like, how did you grow up and then end up in insurance and then end up selling, you know, whole life insurance to people? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, um, while I was doing my MBA, I got a concentration in project management. And I thought I was going to be a project manager. I was going to take the PMP course, the project management professional course or the mm-hmm. exam, uh, become a PMP, work for large companies in downtown Chicago as a project manager. That was my original goal. But I, I as I was taking the courses, I didn't really click that well with all the project management techniques, the software. I don't really have that kind of I don't know, passion. You know, I don't, um, a lot of people in that in my curriculum had backgrounds in engineering and IT, and it just didn't really click well with my personality. Mm. I have, I think I have a technical mind, but at the same time, I also didn't really um, understand project management that well and then to make a career out of it. So I was working at Allstate Insurance and sales and marketing, and I loved talking to people about money. I loved advising people. And I noticed that people were becoming comfortable talking to me about their money. So I wanted to make that into a career, pretty much a money career where I'm, I'm solving money problems for people. And, and I really went from one company to another company, from, from Allstate to Blue Cross to Humana to these different insurance and financial institutions. And like I mentioned earlier, I, I, I read the book, Become Your, uh, The Bank on Yourself Revolution. That introduced me to it. And I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. I want to be a self-employed financial professional where I solve money problems for people, whether they have too little of it or they have too much of it or whatever situation they're in, I want to be able to be their money problem solver. Awesome. And then, you know, I want you to be able to plug your business as well. What do you, what do you charge for coaching? And also, how do you make, when it comes to selling someone an IBC plan, is it just you get the commission off their life insurance program? Or do you like take a little off the, off the top every month? Or how does that work? Yeah, so the only, the only form of pay I get is just the commission from the uh, insurance companies that we work with. That's the only pay, which means that if somebody, for example, reaches out today, we do a 15-minute call, a free 15-minute call. And then the second step is we do the 60-minute financial analysis. And the third step is I provide the solution, do all the homework, do all the calculations, show them how they can save money, how they can get out of debt, how they can build predictable wealth, show them all the benefits, everything. And then the fourth step is we do a free application to the insurance company. They don't have to invest in anything yet. We have to submit it to the insurance company. It takes about four to six weeks to get approved. Then, you know, now we're already at the fifth step now. They've been approved. Then... Um, they fund a policy, then I would get paid from the from their premium dollars that they paid to the insurance company. There's no additional commission. It's not like if somebody wants to do $10,000 a year, it's going to be $10,000 plus $1,000 for my commission. Yeah. It's already included in the original premiums. The insurance company has already allocated the agent's commissions in the original oh. premium dollars that you've paid. So 
uh, I would I, then I would get paid, which means that somebody can go through the whole process and not even proceed with the insurance company if they don't want to for some re- for for whatever reason, and they wouldn't. I, they would get the coaching, they would get the consultations, they would get the uh, calculations, they would get all the value without essentially paying a penny. What is the insurance company looking for in the approval process? So it's mostly, there's two main things. It's uh, medical and financial. But for most people, it's going to be just medical because it's it's life insurance. The insurance company may, needs to make sure you don't, you know, they're not going to insure you today and then tomorrow you're going to pass away, you know, from a, a health condition. So they look at, they um, they look at your some of your medical records depending on your age depending on certain things they have like algorithms so like for example if somebody is thirty years old never went to the doctor they're probably just going to skip past all of that and go right into approval because they they kind of have common sense there's oh. probably there's they're probably going to say all right this person is thirty years old nothing wrong with them and I'm not saying you have to be thirty years old to do this I'm just saying that the the mind of the insurance company versus somebody who's sixty five. And they've gone to the doctor four times in one year. Now they're going to say, all right, let's order blood and urine. Then they're from the blood and urine, be able to determine blood pressure, diabetes, um, cancer, heart attack, stroke, all these other things like that. And then from there, they make determinations. It doesn't mean that if you have a pre-existing condition, they're going to deny you, but they're going to do the math. They have medical directors that they evaluate with. They talk to them and then they get a, the, the underwriters get a perspective. Is this person insurable or not? And that's what they're uh-huh. evaluating. And then the second thing is the financial. This doesn't apply to most people. Most people are just the medical. But if I'm, for example, going to save a million dollars a year into a whole life policy for the next 10 years, the insurance company is going to say, all right, where is this $1 million a year coming from? They're going to want to look at my tax returns. They're going to want to look at my assets. They're going to want to look at how much money I made, where, where it's coming from, why I want to allocate that much. And I have to, as the as the advisor, I have to put together a report and put together all the figures and say, all right, Mr. Underwriter, this is what we're doing. The client makes you know $5 million a year. We want to allocate 20% of their annual income because the client wants you know X amount of dollars in retirement. They also want to protect their money from market, market risks. They also want to become their own source of finance. So I have to kind of put together this whole report and then send it over to them. And they have to evaluate it. Similar to how you would evaluate, how an underwriter would evaluate a loan um, from a bank loan. Kind of the same thinking principles of where's this money coming from? Why is it being used this way? So that's the financial part. But that doesn't really apply to a lot of people because most people are just putting in, um, uh, it usually applies to larger cases. I know that a lot of my audience will be concerned with the health aspect just because in the last year or so, obviously we have, Regulatory agencies, governments, and even you know just concert venues and things like that requiring certain medical procedures, specifically the COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. But you know, once you've opened that can of worms, where you know just private entities are requiring certain things, tests and and yeah. vaccines and that sort of thing, it can be a slippery slope. Is there some guarantee that the life insurance company is not going to just cancel your plan and take your money if you refuse to do some procedure? Well, well, so um, yeah, they will, the insurance company will never make you do something. And then also the insurance company can never, once you've been approved, then you would pay for the policy. Then they could never rescind it and take it away unless somehow you lied. And then they found out about it like six months later, they could come back and say like, hey, you lied about this. So here's your money back and you're, you're canceling the policy. So, but so they, they will give you your money back. They're not just going to tie it up like uh, some banks have been. Like I think, I think Alex Jones, for instance, like <laughs> lost his PayPal account. And they just took his money. Like he wasn't able to even recover it. 
No, insurance companies are like BS. <laughs> insurance companies are highly regulated, typically on the state level, and they have to. Yeah, they wouldn't even want to do that. They wouldn't want to keep somebody's premium dollars and expose them to lawsuits, and then yeah. their reputation and other people canceling and you know moving away. So their reputation and the regulations play a big role. But yeah, for the most part, once a company says approved, and then you pay for it, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, you're set in the policy. You're you're good. If you and insurance companies have different ways of uncovering details, you know? So mm-hmm. if you did lie about something or if, if something didn't make sense, they would, they would contact me and say like, hey, the you know client said they never had their driver license suspended, but we have their motor, motor vehicle report right here. And it says oh, yeah. their license was suspended three times. Can you please explain this? And I'll take it to the client and be like, hey, this is what happened. We put no for that question. How do we explain this, you know? And then we go back to them. So they're catching, the insurance company is catching everything because for mm-hmm. two main reasons. One, because of their risk management, they want to insure the right people. And then for two, the insurance company doesn't want to take your money and then insure you. And then something happens and then they go back and say, oh, well, you said this. So now we're going to hold our money back. They don't want that problem to happen because it ruins their reputation. Yeah. Think about it, if you had a loved one or a friend who passed away. And then the insurance company, they were, the beneficiary was expecting a million dollars, the family. And then the insurance company comes back and says, oh, well, you know, you lied about this and you lied about this. So we're going to hold this million dollars back. They would have a terrible reputation. They'd get sued. People wouldn't want to do business with that company anymore. So they want to prevent all of that from happening by getting to the truth, figuring everything out, and then coming up with a decision to either approve somebody or not. And I'm just kind of firing questions off the top of my head. So this is really a subject change. But so do people who are engaged in IBC also like have other non-interest bearing life insurance program plans? Is that is that like even worth it? Like does someone maybe take out a term life insurance plan or like their employer provided life insurance plan? Or is it pretty yeah. much everything goes into, into the IBC yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, definitely. So IBC is it's never meant to be like all 100 percent of everything you do has to be IBC. Mm-hmm. Definitely term. We use term. For example, I, I recently did a term policy for a client who uh, does a lot of commercial real estate. He borrows from banks and buys commercial real estate. And his banker was like, um, do you have term life insurance, a million dollars in term life insurance? And he was like, no, why? And he's like, because if you did, then um, you, could use, you could use the policy as collateral assignment, meaning that if something were to happen to you while you have these existing loans then the bank would only take from the life insurance what you owe them, the, the previous balance. So this way, you don't pass away and now the bank has to chase your family for the money. They could just take it out of the life insurance. And if you did that, we can lower your interest from like 5% to 4% or something like ridiculous like that. And he did the math and he was like, that'll save me like $10,000 a year. So he decided to do a term life policy for $1,000 a year for a million dollars. So we do stuff like that. Cool. Would he fund that from his IBC account or does that not make sense? You could do that, yeah. Um, he just prefers to pay it out of his checking account. But yeah, you could do that. You could borrow from the life insurance, from one life insurance policy to pay the premiums for another life insurance policy. I've read that when you borrow from your IBC life insurance policy, that you basically set your own interest rate. Is that right? Yeah. So there are a couple of things with that. So number one is that, for example, I'm working with one insurance company. I borrow from them. The insurance company sets the interest rate that I'm going to pay them. So typically it's 5% simple interest. I pay that to the insurance company. But now, um, let's say, for example, I own a business and it's you know my name um, and then there's a business. I can loan the money out to my business at whatever interest rate I want. That's how people determine the interest rates that you're determining it based off of from one entity to another entity. Or like, for example, like I'm doing right now, 
uh, private money lending where I'm going to my policy, borrowing 5%, and then I'm going to loan that out to a real estate investor at like 12%. So I'm going to, I can control that. I can control how much I'm charging based on how much the person wants to accept or based on the other entity. But the insurance company itself, they determine the interest rate. It's their money that you're actually borrowing, leveraging your money. Okay. So, and you're really using this to play with stuff too. That private money lending is, uh, that's something I wanted to look into, but I don't have the net worth to even qualify to, to do it. So, uh, well, this, I'm only doing it with $15,000. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe I'd be able to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> although I, I think, is that a like safe investment? Do you think? Yeah. So it's, so when you do private money lending, it's a promissory note. And what that means is that your prom the person borrowing is promising to pay you back, um, and that's different than an investment. So when you invest, for example, with somebody, you're taking on the risk with them. If the business goes it doesn't work out, um, then the investment is kind of you lose the investment. It's like buying stocks. If the stocks don't work out, you lost the investment. But when you do loans, um, it's for the most it's a promise. You know, somebody's promising to pay you back regardless of how their the business goes. So there's a little bit more guarantees there. Plus. Um, real estate tends to be safer than stocks and cryptocurrency. Sure. It's not entirely safe, obviously, but it tends to be safer. And one thing, the reason why I'm doing it with this particular investor is that I don't have to lock up my money for a really long time. I'm just going to keep churning. I'm going to put like $15,000 and just keep churning that over and over. Like I'd invest, uh, loan off $15,000 to him, get my money back plus the interest, put that back into the policy, borrow again, and then just keep churning that over and over again. And then I'm actually going to, my goal is to start another policy from the interest that I get from him. So I'm going to churn one policy and then make it into two policies. And then I'm going to keep doing that, of course, into from one policy to two to three. And I know the sky's the limit. I'll probably do 50 policies just doing this way. Just exactly like uh, I learned a lot of this stuff from banks and this is exactly what banks do. And I think that there are definite ways to snowball your money and have it compound on each other from the same money that you currently have. What's the benefit of doing multiple policies? I, I guess I don't understand the, the mechanics behind that. Yeah, so you typically have limits for your policy. Like my okay. policy, um, it has a, something called a modified endowment contract limit, a MEC limit. So once you hit that limit, like for example, if you say, all right, I want to do a policy that's $300 a month, that's $3,600 a year, my MEC limit could be $4,600 a year. This means that if I, I could add, the most I could add into the policy is a total of $4,600, $3,600 plus an extra $1,000. Once I hit that limit, I cannot add any more. If I do add more, then the policy becomes a modified endowment contract, which means it becomes like an investment vehicle, which means that it gets taxed like an investment vehicle. And I don't want that. I want it to grow tax-free. I want to be able to take out the money tax-free. I want to be able to have a tax-free retirement. So I'm going to keep hitting the MEC limits on every policy. So my first policy hit the MEC limit, got a second policy, I'm going to hit that MEC limit and so on. So you keep doing that over and over again. It's very common for people to have like 20 policies because they keep hitting the MEC limits on them. How does someone get into private money lending if there's anybody in the audience that's interested in it? The number one way is through connections. You want to work, you want to find so a couple ways. So you can actually find the real estate investors themselves who are looking for the for the private money. And you have to do a lot of research on this. There's a couple books out there. If you reach out to me, I'll send you the books and everything. I can guide you throughout the whole process of doing this. Okay. But you want to there's there's essentially two big ways to get it. One way is you go directly to the real estate investors. And then you offer them to be their, your lend, their lender, your lender. And then the other way is you can go through organizations who connect private money lenders to real estate investors. They all have their ways of fees and commissions and how they get paid and different things. 
Some of them take from the real estate investor. Some of them take from the private money lender. Some of them take from both. Some of them charge referral fee. There's so many different ways. There's really no one size fits all. I, I did an episode on my show, uh, Thinking Like a Bank, episode 25, where I had a private money lender on and she talked about this. So she does for a living. She does private money lending coaching. Um, so you can reach out to me. You can check out the show. Um, and I, I can even connect you with the real estate investor that I'm going through right now to do private money lending deals. All right. Awesome. Why don't you go ahead and plug your links and, uh, and we'll, we'll go ahead and close out. Yeah. So to do everything, to talk about infinite banking, to talk about private money lending, to talk about business coaching, it's all the same website. It's finassetprotection.com, F-I-N, asset, A-S-S-E-T, protection.com, finassetprotection.com. All right. Thanks again to Sari for joining me today. And thanks as always to you for tuning in. Don't forget, I am giving away a lifetime master membership to Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. If you haven't signed up yet, you still have a couple of days left. Head to woods.blackbirdpodcast.com to sign up or just click the link at the very top of my feed on Substack. And don't forget, if you're interested in learning more about IBC or perhaps hiring Sari as your IBC consultant, drop him a line. I will put his links in the show notes. Just head to blackbirdpodcast.com to check those out. And I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free.